What would you do if your child disappeared? How long would you hold out hope? And after you hit enough dead ends to call the search off, how would you carry on without an answer as to what happened? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor and a parent who would simultaneously fall into a sleep coma, never sleep again, and die if my child ever went missing. This week, a parent's literal worst nightmare comes true, and their child's name, Aton Pates, becomes a cautionary tale. I'm not sure there is anything worse in the universe than being the parent of a child who goes missing. Except maybe being the child who goes missing. As a parent, it's unfathomable. I would imagine it's bad enough to be the parent of a child who dies, especially if they're murdered. But the not knowing, the lack of closure of a missing child seems like a special kind of torment. How does anyone live out the rest of their life not knowing what happened to their child? This is hard to write about. There is something foreboding about even just imagining it, let alone saying it out loud for all to hear. My son's school is four blocks from our apartment. There is only one turn between here and there and one major avenue to cross with a crossing guard. And there isn't enough money you could pay me to let him walk there by himself. Even though I know the statistics say the chances of someone snatching him are low. And he knows all the rules. Never talk to strangers, scream bloody murder if someone tries to do anything. I've actually trained him to yell, I am the devil, if someone tries to grab him. Well, on May 25th, 1979, six-year-old Aton Pates begged his mom to let him go to school by himself like he did every morning. Aton asked every day, but his mother, Julie, always said no. After all, Aton took the city bus to his school, which was about 15 blocks away. All manner of people took that bus, and there were a half-dozen stops between the Pateses and the school. Though Aton's schoolmates and their parents would also be on the bus and could look out for Aton... Julie just didn't feel right sending her child off alone. That morning, though, already juggling her younger son and another very young child who had stayed the night and getting ready to open the daycare she ran out of their loft apartment for the day, Julie relented. Julie walked Aton downstairs and to their front door. Aton had a dollar in his hand as he trotted off down the street. It's unclear whether he got the dollar from his mom or a local handyman named Othniel Miller, who worked in their building and had his workshop along the route Aton would have taken to get to his bus stop. So, if you're like me, some alarm bells have already gone off. First off, six years old seems really young to be going anywhere by yourself. Granted, it was the late 70s. It was a looser time, I guess. But looser or not, things we take for granted as parents today were not commonplace back then. Like an adult handing someone else's kid money? Nope, not today, Satan. Recently, a neighbor gave my friend's four-year-old an expensive doll for her birthday. They had never spoken to that neighbor before, and instantly everyone's hackles went up. 
Why was he giving a little girl he didn't know a really expensive gift? Was he grooming her? Should we call the police? I was sitting in the kids' section at my local library a few months ago when an employee asked me if I had a child with me and if I didn't, would I please move? We do not like random adults around our children. Some might be quick to judge Aton's mother for letting him go anywhere by himself at such a young age, but in Julie's defense, every other time Aton had asked, she had said no. That morning, though, she relented, and I get it. Have you ever been pestered by a little kid? If they want something bad enough, they will not let up. They're like a chihuahua who gets a hold of your pant leg and won't let go. Julie was busy and overwhelmed, and everyone else always let their kids go outside alone, so I'm sure she thought it would be okay. After all, the bus stop was literally only 400 feet from their front door. What could possibly go wrong in 400 feet? Well, you know how they say trust your instincts? Julie's instinct to be overprotective turned out to be right. And that morning, against her better judgment, she made a decision that she would not only regret for the rest of her life, but would change the way everyone thought about parenting. Because Eitan never made it to school that day. It's likely he never even made it to the bus. Somewhere in the very short distance between his front door, where his mom hugged him and watched him walk off, and the bus stop, Eitan Pates vanished. The case wouldn't be solved for nearly 40 years. These days, when I get my son Monty, short for Montague, to school, even three minutes after the late bell has rung, I get no less than three phone calls, three text messages, and an email letting me know that your child, Mantegu, was tardy or absent today. So there's no world today in which he would be missing from school all day and I wouldn't know about it. In the late 1970s in New York City, though, things were different. Kids went places by themselves all the time. It was totally normal to let your kids play outside or go to the corner store unattended. So Julie and her husband Stan were outliers when it came to being overprotective of their son. Not for nothing, but growing up in New York City, my friends and I kinda had free reign over our neighborhood. When I was nine years old, my best friend Carrie and I would sit in the back of her mom's hatchback facing the back window, pretending we were in a spaceship. Forget about seatbelts. We weren't even sitting in seats. And once, we went to the corner store and bought a pack of cigarettes, claiming we were getting them for her dad. And that was nine years after 1979. Side note, we didn't realize we had to specify that we wanted filtered cigarettes. So when we tried to smoke the Camel non-filters out her bedroom window, we both ended up puking. It put us both off cigarettes for a good four years, by which point, at 13, we could still buy cigarettes in any store in New York City. Anyway, the late 1970s. It is remarkable that parents gave their children such free reign in New York City, considering how incredibly violent the city was at the time. New York City was in financial ruin, very close to collapsing completely. It was so bad, President Ford was like, uh, you're on your own, New York City. Crime was an everyday part of life. So much so that teams of civilian vigilantes were taking over where police were falling short. It was like the wild, wild west on the East Coast. 
So as soon as Eitan's parents realized he hadn't made it to school, they called the police and a super extensive search effort began. 300 police officers were assigned. Local parents made flyers and went door to door. A detective on the case called it the number one priority of the police department. My friend, Amanda Stern, was Eitan's neighbor at the time. She was nine years old then. She told me, Either Friday night or Saturday night of that weekend, helicopters circled the village, and I remember floodlights of some sort, which shone through my bedroom and kept me up. I heard the jangle of dog collars, and then at some point that weekend saw cops with bloodhounds walking up and down the street. There were vans and volunteers going around the neighborhood using megaphones to narrate descriptions of Aton. They asked if anyone had seen a little boy wearing a black airline cap, blue pants, and a blue jacket. I remember something about a tote bag with elephants on it, but I could be conflating that with something else. Even the neighborhood children got involved in the effort. Amanda told me, Everyone wanted to find him. A ton of us kids biked around calling his name, looking for him. We hung signs all over the village. Everywhere we went, we looked for him. The cops came to our house and held up a photo of Aton asking if we'd seen him, and then looked in our basement and on the roof. The entire time, I kept thinking that they were doing it wrong and didn't know how to look for missing kids because they never looked under our beds or in our closets. And with the very visible search effort came the media swarm. And of course, when someone is missing, the more media attention you get on it, the better. But one tabloid photographer apparently asked Julie to work up more tears so that, you ready for this one? he wouldn't have to come back and bother her again when they found the body. This douche canary had the gall to ask the terrified mother of a missing child to cry more so that when they found the body of her son, he wouldn't have to come all the way back to Soho to take more pictures. Deep cleansing breath. Two months after Aton went missing, the massive search effort had come up with nothing. Not a single clue or lead. Theories were thrown around, rumors and possible sightings. My friend Amanda told me, Some people were claiming they'd seen him when they hadn't. Others were gossiping, judging his family. There was some talk that he and a friend had been in a lumber store. Then someone claimed to see him on the subway, and that turned into a theory about him going to visit his aunt in Queens. According to the New York Times, Detective William Butler would walk the 400-feet route Aton would have taken to the bus that morning every day back and forth for two hours, searching for anything that might have been overlooked in the initial sweep. Butler already reportedly interviewed more than 200 people, including a psychic who sent him on a wild goose chase through abandoned buildings and onto a roof with a water tower she claimed he went into. And, along with the 300,000 posters of Aton plastered all over the city, Aton became the first milk carton child. If you were a kid in the 80s, you'll probably remember the ubiquitous milk carton kids. While you were munching away on your frosted sugar cocoa bombs, copyright Calvin and Hobbes, you were staring into the eyes of a child around your age with the words, Have you seen me? printed underneath which seems like a great way to be traumatized before Saturday morning cartoons. 
Something you may have learned about me if you've listened to enough episodes of this podcast is that sometimes I go down rabbit holes once I Google something like milk carton kids. So please enter this rabbit hole with me just for a moment. Before the milk carton initiative, there was no national database of missing children. Needless to say, this made finding lost children hard. And if that child had been taken across state lines, you could pretty much forget it. So the Milk Carton Kit initiative started as a way to at least help get the word out. It was mostly unsuccessful, but there was one case in which a mother and stepfather kidnapped their daughter who'd been living with her father and took her across state lines to Colorado. Four years after her kidnapping, she saw her own face on the back of a milk carton in a grocery store. Apparently, she was still too young to read, so she didn't realize she was a missing person. I have no idea why she thought her own face was on a milk carton, but here's the craziest part. She showed it to her stepfather, who then bought her the carton of milk. And then, when the family finished the milk, he let her keep it. I mean... This is some serious hubris. So she cut the back of the milk carton off and kept it. And then I guess she took it with her wherever she went because she left it along with some toys at a neighbor's house. And when the neighbor saw it, they were like, uh, what the fuck? And called the number under the picture and she was reunited with her father. Holy cats, as my son says. The milk carton program sort of faded away, partly because the Amber Alert system was implemented in 1996, but also because Dr. Spock, the world-famous pediatrician, not Mr. Spock from Star Trek, was like, this seems like a great way to traumatize children. See, even I knew that, and I don't have a PhD. And then there was the issue that most of the children featured on the milk cartons were white, even though they made up the smallest number of children missing. And I guess instead of being more inclusive, they were like, ugh, forget it. And they canceled the Milk Carton Child Initiative. Anyway, this moment in time catalyzed fear in both kids and parents alike. Here's Amanda again, who would have been nine years old at the time. Most people were freaked out and the adults doubled down on stranger danger. I was terrified. My friends were terrified. The cops interviewed my brother in their car, and I watched inside my house, terrified they'd drive away with him, and he too would be gone forever. The idea of disappearing into thin air had, until that time, just been a fear I had without concrete evidence that such a thing actually occurred, but here it was, actually happening. And that just about did me in. It wasn't until 1982 that anyone was even suspected in Aton's disappearance. After being arrested for stealing two young boys' backpacks as a ploy to lure them into a drain pipe in which he was living, 38-year-old Jose Antonio Ramos admitted that while his ex-girlfriend, who is called Sandy in most of the reporting, had babysat Aton, he himself didn't know him. Police had asked Ramos about Aton while searching Ramos's drainpipe home, where they found toys and photographs of boys, many of whom were blonde, like Aton. When an assistant DA asked Ramos about the pictures, he said they were just friends. He also said he heard violent voices in his head and struggled to control them. 
Ramos's ex-girlfriend, Sandy, had been hired to walk Eitan home from school during a school bus strike that happened only weeks before Eitan's disappearance. Police also found photos of her young son among the stashed photos in Ramos's collection. Sandy said she could never imagine Ramos molesting her son. I mean, I couldn't imagine anyone molesting my son either. Doesn't mean they couldn't. Ramos claimed the boys in the photos were his friends. You know, like how all men in their 30s have pictures of their seven-year-old friends. Prosecutors were ultimately unable to make a viable connection between Ramos and Eitan. The parents of the two boys Ramos tried to lure into his drainpipe house didn't press charges, and Ramos left town. But in the late 1980s, a new prosecutor was assigned to Eitan's case, Stuart Grabois, and he apparently found connections between Ramos and Eitan that the earlier investigators had missed. What those connections were, I don't know, but Grabois seemed convinced that Ramos was the guy. Unfortunately, no one knew where Ramos was. Fortunately, for Grabois, in 1988, he found Ramos in a prison in Pennsylvania where he'd apparently been targeting children who were left unattended at Rainbow Family of Living Light Gatherings. You do not want to get me started on Rainbow Gatherings. Once in college, a white girl with dreads who called herself Starlight asked me out of nowhere if Daisy was my rainbow gathering name. I cannot with these people. Incidentally, I'm 100% convinced that they all became money managers and retired to the Hamptons. Anyway, Ramos had been convicted of assaulting a five-year-old, another so-called friend, I guess. Grabois brought Ramos to New York City for questioning and made chit-chat about much lesser charges Ramos thought he was being brought in for until suddenly Grabois asked him how many times he had tried to have sex with Aton Pates. According to an article in New York Magazine, Ramos said, I guess you have a witness. I'll tell you everything. The article goes on to say Ramos admitted, quote, that yes, he'd taken a little boy to his apartment for sex on the day Aton disappeared. Yes, he was 90% sure it was the same boy he later saw on TV. But no, he let him go when the boy refused his advances, even walked him to the subway station and waved goodbye there. End quote. Grabois tried to call Ramos's bluff, but Ramos insisted that's what happened and then asked for a lawyer. When Ramos returned a few days later with his legal aid attorney who advised him to remain silent, Ramos was wearing a yarmulke as a sign of his newfound and self-proclaimed Jewish roots. I don't know what that detail has to do with the rest of the story. I just think it's funny. Most people claim to have found Jesus. Ramos claimed to have found Jesus was not the son of God. And so, because he, like his predecessors, couldn't find a viable connection between Ramos and Aton, Grabois found another way to put Ramos away. And look, if it sounds like I'm sympathizing with Ramos here, please know that I think Jose Antonio Ramos was a disgusting cretin. I also think he was severely mentally unwell and needed help. But that doesn't excuse his disgusting behavior. I just find it interesting that time and time again, we hear about prosecutors who set their sights on one person or three or six and grab on like a pit bull and never let go. 
Cast a wide enough net and you can find connections between literally anything. Anyway, Grabois managed to put Ramos back into prison on another molestation charge and then went about finding other inmates who could draw a confession out of him. The first was a guy we'll call Bob, who got verifiable facts from Ramos, like when he served in the military. So when Bob told Grabois that Ramos claimed to have known Aton's bus route in detail, Grabois believed him. According to Bob, Ramos said, quote, they would never be able to charge him for Aton's murder because there was no body. But he also said that he believed one day Aton would show up somewhere alive. The next informant gained Ramos's trust by telling him that Socrates also liked to have sex with little boys. Please get me out of this nightmare. And eventually, Ramos began opening up, telling him details about other victims he had assaulted. And then, Ramos described violating a boy who he had picked up on Prince Street. The informant asked why the little boy had gone with him willingly, and Ramos said he told the boy, Remember me? I'm Sandy's friend. He also claimed Ramos said, Grabois knows I did it, and it's killing him, because he can't get it out of me. Despite these cryptic half-confessions, there was still no actual evidence linking Ramos to Aton's disappearance, and eventually the DA's office admitted that it was hard to prosecute without a body, which is interesting considering they do just that all the time. The Pateses sued Ramos for wrongful death in a civil trial and won, and I don't think I will ever understand how that works. How someone can be either found not guilty or is not tried at all in a case, but can then lose a civil suit for the same case, makes no sense to me. Then again, I walked around for 10 minutes looking for my phone the other day while it was cradled between my ear and my shoulder, and I was literally talking into it. So I'm not the brightest cookie in the knife drawer. Ramos was released from prison in 2012 and immediately rearrested for putting a false address in his official file or whatever. And look, I'm an abolitionist, but as far as I'm concerned, this dude should not be out walking the streets. I don't know where he should be, but not out in the world. Especially because with his long white hair and long white beard, he literally looks like Santa Claus. You understand what I'm saying? He is currently trying to appeal his latest conviction. God help us all. Now, just because the most likely culprit couldn't be convicted for the crime doesn't mean the case was closed. All New York City needed were some fresh eyes, and they were about to get just that. In 2010, New York's newest DA, Cyrus Vance, won his seat with a campaign that promised to reopen Aton's case. Which is strange when you consider how many missing or dead children's cold cases there must be. There are a lot. But maybe less strange when you consider that the kids who were around when Aton went missing would now, theoretically, be old enough to say, donate to Vance's election campaign? I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Anyway, after reviewing all the case files, Vance and his team decided to go back to Othniel Miller, the handyman who may or may not have given Aton a dollar on his way to the bus that morning. 
But nothing of note was found, and that line of investigation was put to rest. Then, a new lead came in. A New Jersey man believed his brother-in-law, Pedro Hernandez, might have been the one responsible for Aton's disappearance. Hernandez was 18 in 1979 and worked at a bodega on Prince Street near where Aton lived and got the bus. Shortly after Aton's disappearance, Hernandez moved back to New Jersey, where he had apparently only recently moved to New York City from. And then, according to the New York Times, he began confessing to various people, including, astoundingly, his fiance, who still married him? Apparently, these confessions were all slightly different from each other. One person said he thought Hernandez had killed a black child. His fiance thought he'd killed a Latino teenager. Police brought him in for questioning, and after hours of interrogation, Hernandez confessed that he put Aton in a plastic bag while he was still alive, put the bag in a box, and dumped the box a block away. The Times article said this was short of a confession of murder, and call me crazy, but if you confess to putting a person in a plastic bag and dumping it, you're confessing to murder. Despite him not fully confessing, police arrested Hernandez. It was the first arrest in the case of Aton Pates in the 33 years he'd been missing. Once again, the prosecution's only evidence was Hernandez's confession, which, beyond being problematic for the obvious reasons, his lawyers argued that Hernandez's own words were unreliable because he had, quote, limited intelligence and a personality disorder. To back up this claim, Hernandez's youngest daughter, because apparently after confessing that he'd killed a child, his fiancée not only married him, but had multiple children with him, testified that her father claimed, quote, seeing demons and an angelic woman in white, end quote, and that he watered a dead tree branch to make it grow, and that he talked to himself. And look, if bad gardening and talking to yourself are signs you've killed someone... I better go on the lam immediately. Hernandez's lawyers also pointed to the person they believed to be the more likely culprit, the man who was already in jail for child molestation, Jose Antonio Ramos. After 18 days of deliberation, the jury came back deadlocked. There was, after all, literally zero proof of Hernandez's guilt. Surprisingly, though, there was only one juror who doubted Hernandez's guilt. The judge declared a mistrial, but that didn't stop old steel trap jawed D.A. Cyrus Vance. Vance retried Hernandez and, in my honest opinion, miraculously won. After the trial, he declared, quote, Today, a jury affirmed beyond all lasting doubt that Pedro Hernandez kidnapped and killed the missing child. Did they? All lasting doubt? Have you ever met a pathological liar? or even a non-pathological liar? Some of us, especially those with certain personality disorders, can convince ourselves of something so thoroughly we don't even know truth from fiction. My husband wrote one of the best jokes I've ever heard, and I liked the joke so much that over the years, I somehow convinced myself that I had written it. I truly believed I had, but he did, or so he claims. Look, maybe there's a mountain of evidence I don't know about. Maybe everyone is keeping that evidence super secret for some strange reason. I don't know. 
but one person's confession should not a conviction make. I'm no expert, and I've certainly spent less time investigating this case than others, if you can call Googling investigating, but I'm like 99% sure Jose Antonio Ramos is guilty and not Pedro Hernandez. But D.A. Cyrus Vance gets to add another notch to his I solved it belt, I guess. New York City got just that much safer under D.A. Vance's rule. Huzzah for him! He gets to close the case and file it under closed, and now we can all just move on, I guess? As for Aton Pates' parents, Julie and Stan, I don't know how they've managed to keep going, but they have. They still have two other children to love and have been able to watch them grow and thrive. When they sued Ramos in 2001, Stan said, quote, Don't get me wrong, I'm not sitting around doing nothing but mourning and thinking of revenge, but I've also waited 30 years to get justice for Aton. I'll wait as long as it takes. End quote. I don't know if justice even exists when it comes to the death of a child. No matter who is or isn't caught or is or isn't punished, justice is having your child home and safe. The Pates family eventually moved from that loft in Soho. I'm sure it was bittersweet to vacate the place they dreamed of Aton returning to for over 40 years. I also hope they retired somewhere quiet and peaceful. Somewhere where every storefront, street corner, and bus stop doesn't hold reminders of that awful day and the following decades of their lives. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, two hikers go into the woods and none come out. Hikers gone missing. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Thank you.